Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 00 of The Life and Death of Cardinal Wolsey. Read by John Greenman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life and Death of Cardinal Wolsey, written by George Cavendish. Introductory Note and the Prologue. Introductory Note George Cavendish, author of The Life of Cardinal Wolsey, the first true biography written in England, was born in 1500 and died in 1561. He was the eldest son of Thomas Cavendish, clerk of the pipe in the Exchequer. In 1524 he was married to a niece of Sir Thomas More. Two years later, in 1526, he took service in the suite of Cardinal Wolsey, abandoning, as the Cardinal said, his own country, wife and children, his own house and family, his rest and quietness, only to serve me. In the four years that intervened between this time and Wolsey's fall and death, Cavendish was his devoted servitor. He was with him in the time of his adversity, and was present at his death. Cavendish seems deeply to have meditated the dramatic spectacle which his master's life presented, and to have taken a heart in its lesson of the wondrous mutability of vain honors, the brittle assurances of abundance, the uncertainty of dignities, the flattering of vain friends, and the tickled trust to worldly princes. After Wolsey's burial, Cavendish retired, as speedily as he might, to his quiet country home in Suffolk, there to spend the thirty-one years of life remaining to him in comparative poverty and failure. He must, however, have found solace in continual brooding upon the rich and crowded years of his service with the great cardinal, for after some years of idleness he bestirred himself to write this simple, sincere, and picturesque record of the things he had seen. His work remained long in manuscript, for, owing to its reflections upon the character of Henry VIII, it could not safely be published in the lifetime of his daughter. It was first printed in an incomplete and corrupt form in 1641, for the sake of turning its moral against Archbishop Laud, another prelate ambitious in statecraft. Before this time, however, it had been largely circulated in numerous manuscript copies, 
and it had formed the basis of the account of Woolsey in Hollingshed's Chronicles. Either indirectly through Hollingshed, or directly in manuscript, it had colored the interpretation of Woolsey's character and career that has been made traditional by Shakespeare. This cardinal, though from an humble stock undoubtedly was fashioned to much honor from his cradle. He was a scholar, and a ripe and good one, exceeding wise, fair-spoken, and persuading, lofty and sour to them that loved him not, but to those men that sought him sweet as summer. And though he were unsatisfied in getting, which was a sin, yet in bestowing he was most princely ever witness for him Ipswich and Oxford, one of which fell with him, unwilling to outlive the good that did it, the other, though unfinished yet so famous, so excellent in art and yet so rising, that Christendom shall ever speak his virtue. His overthrow heaped happiness upon him, for then, and not till then, he felt himself and found the blessedness of being little, and to add greater honor to his age than man could give him, he died fearing God. Editions of the book were printed from imperfect manuscripts several times in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, but no edition has any final value until we come to that of S. W. Singer, who reprinted it from what is fairly established to have been the author's manuscript in 1815. The present edition follows that of Singer, who slightly modernized the archaic orthography of the original manuscript, and made uniform its irregularities, though certain of the corrections made from the manuscript by Mr. F. S. Ellis, who edited it for the Kemstock Press edition in 1893 and for the Temple Classics edition in 1899, have been embodied in it. THE PROLOGUE Meseems it were no wisdom to credit every light tale blasted abroad by the blasphemous mouth of the rude commonalty, for we daily hear how, with their blasphemous trump, they spread abroad innumerable lies, without either shame or honesty, which prima facie showeth forth a visage of truth, as though it were a perfect verity and matter indeed, whereas there is nothing more untrue. And amongst the wise sort, so it is esteemed, with whom those babblings be of small force and effect. Forsooth I have read the exclamations of divers worthy and notable authors, made against such false rumors and fond opinions of the fantastical commonalty, who delighteth in nothing more than to hear strange things, and to see new alterations of authorities, rejoicing sometimes in such new fantasies which afterwards give them more occasion of repentance than of joyfulness. Thus may all men of wisdom and discretion understand the timorous madness of the rude commonalty, and not give to them too hasty credit of every sudden rumor 
until the truth be perfectly known by the report of some approved and credible person that ought to have thereof true intelligence i have heard and also seen set forth in divers printed books some untrue imaginations after the death of divers persons which in their life were of great estimation that were invented rather to bring their honest names into infamy and perpetual slander of the common multitude than otherwise the occasion therefore that maketh me to rehearse all these things is this forasmuch as i intend god willing to write here some part of the proceedings of legate and cardinal wolsey archbishop of york and of his ascending and descending from onerous estate whereof some part shall be of mine own knowledge and some of other persons information forsooth this cardinal was my lord and master whom in his life i served and so remained with him after his fall continually during the term of all his trouble until he died as well in the south as in the north parts and noted all his demeanor and usage in all that time as also in his wealthy triumph and glorious estate and since his death i have heard divers and sundry surmises and imagined tales made of his proceedings and doings which i myself have perfectly known to be most untrue unto the which i could have sufficiently answered according to the truth but as me seemeth it was much better for me to suffer and dissimule the matter and the same to remain still as lies than to reply against their untruth of whom i might for my boldness sooner have kindled a great flame of displeasing than to quench one spark of their malicious untruth therefore i commit the truth to him that knoweth all truth for whatsoever any man hath conceived in him when he lived or since his death thus much i dare be bold to say without displeasure to any person or of affection that in my judgment i never saw this realm in better order quietness and obedience than it was in the time of his authority and rule nor justice better ministered with indifferency as i could evidently prove if i should not be accused of too much affection or else that i set forth more than truth i will therefore here desist to speak any more of his commendation and proceed first to his original beginning ascending by fortune's favor up to high honors dignities promotions and riches finis quod g c end of section zero zero introductory note and the prologue section one of the life and death of cardinal wolsey by george cavendish this librivox recording is in the public domain read by john greenman the life of cardinal wolsey part one truth it is cardinal wolsey sometime archbishop of york was an honest poor man's son born in ipswich within the county of suffolk 
and being but a child was very apt to learning, by means whereof his parents, or his good friends and masters, conveyed him to the University of Oxford, where he prospered so in learning that, as he told me in his own person, he was called the boy bachelor, forasmuch as he was made bachelor of arts at fifteen years of age, which was a rare thing and seldom seen. Thus prospering and increasing in learning, he was made fellow of Magdalen College, and, after appointed, for his learning to be schoolmaster there at which time the lord marquis dorset had three of his sons at school there with him committing as well unto him their virtuous education as their instruction and learning it pleased the said marquis against a christmas season to send as well for the schoolmaster as for his children home to his house for their recreation in that pleasant and honorable feast they being then there my lord their father perceived them to be right well employed in learning for their time which contented him so well that he having a benefice in his gift being at that time void gave the same to the schoolmaster in reward for his diligence at his departing after christmas upon his return to the university and having the presentation thereof he repaired to the ordinary for his institution and induction then being fully furnished of all necessary instruments at the ordinary's hands for his preferment he made speed without any further delay to the said benefice to take thereof possession and being there for that intent one sir amius paulet knight dwelling in the country thereabout took an occasion of displeasure against him upon what ground i know not but sir by your leave he was so bold to set the schoolmaster by the feet during his pleasure, the which was afterward neither forgotten nor forgiven. For when the schoolmaster mounted the dignity of Chancellor of England, he was not oblivious of the old displeasure ministered unto him by Master Paulet, but sent for him, and after many sharp and heinous words, enjoined him to attend upon the council until he were by them dismissed, and not to depart without license upon an urgent pain and forfeiture so that he continued within the middle temple the space of five or six years or more whose lodging there was in the gatehouse next the street which he re-edified very sumptuously garnishing the same on the outside thereof with cardinals hats and arms badges and cognizances of the cardinal with divers other devices in so glorious a sort that he thought thereby to appease his old unkind displeasure. Now may this be a good example and precedent to men in authority, which will sometime work their will without wit, to remember in their authority how authority may decay, and whom they punish of will more than of justice, may after be advanced in the public weal to high dignities and governance, and they, based as low, who will then seek the means to be revenged of old wrongs sustained wrongfully before who would have thought then when sir amius paulet punished this poor scholar that ever he should have attained to be chancellor of england considering his baseness in every condition these be wonderful works of god and fortune 
therefore i would wish all men in authority and dignity to know and fear god in all their triumphs and glory considering in all their doings that authorities be not permanent but may slide and vanish as princes pleasures do alter and change then as all living things must of very necessity pay the due debt of nature which no earthly creature can resist it chanced the lord marquis to depart out of this present life after whose death the schoolmaster considering then with himself to be but a small beneficed man and to have lost his fellowship in the college for as i understand if a fellow of that college be once promoted to a benefice he shall by the rules of the house be dismissed of his fellowship and perceiving himself to be also destitute of his singular good lord thought not to be long unprovided of some other succor or staff to defend him from all such storms as he lately sustained and in his travail thereabout he fell in acquaintance with one sir john manfant a very grave and ancient knight who had a great room in calais under king harry the seventh this knight he served and behaved him so discreetly and justly that he received the special favor of his said master insomuch that for his wit gravity and just behavior he committed all the charge of his office unto his chaplain and as i understand the office was the treasurership of calais who was in consideration of his great age discharged of his chargeable room and returned again into england intending to live at more quiet and through his instant labor and especial favor his chaplain was promoted to the king's service and made his chaplain and when he had once cast anchor in the port of promotion how he wrought i shall somewhat declare he having then a just occasion to be in present sight of the king daily by reason he attended and said mass before his grace in his privy closet and that done he spent not the day forth in vain idleness but gave his attendance upon those whom he thought to bear most rule in the council and to be most in favor with the king the which at that time were dr fox bishop of winchester then secretary and lord privy seal and also sir thomas lovell knight a very sage counsellor and witty being master of the king's wards and constable of the tower these ancient and grave counsellors in process of time after often resort perceived this chaplain to have a very fine wit and what wisdom was packed in his head thought him a meet and apt person to be preferred to witty affairs it chanced at a certain season that the king had an urgent occasion to send an embassy unto the emperor maximilian who lay at that present in the low country of flanders not far from calais the bishop of winchester and sir thomas lovell whom the king most highly esteemed as chief among his counsellors the king counselling and debating with them upon this embassy saw that they had a convenient occasion to prefer the king's chaplain whose excellent wit eloquence and learning they highly commended to the king the king giving ear unto them and being a prince of an excellent judgment and modesty commanded to bring his chaplain whom they so much commended 
before his grace's presence to prove the wit of his chaplain at whose repair the king fell in communication with him in matters of weighty gravity and perceiving his wit to be very fine thought him sufficient to be put in authority and trust with this embassy commanded him thereupon to prepare himself to this enterprise journey and for his depeche to repair to his grace and his trusty counselors aforesaid of whom he should receive his commission and instructions by means whereof he had then a due occasion to repair from time to time into the king's presence who perceived him more and more to be a very wise man and of good intentment and having his depeche took his leave of the king at richmond about noon and so came to london with speed where then the barge of gravesend was ready to launch forth both with a prosperous tide and wind without any further abode he entered the barge and so passed forth his happy speed was such that he arrived at gravesend with little more than three hours where he tarried no longer than his post-horses were provided and traveling so speedily with post-horses that he came to dover the next morning early whereas the passengers were ready under sail displayed to sail to calais into which passengers without any farther abode he entered and sailed forth with them that he arrived at calais within three hours and having there post-horses in a readiness departed incontinent making such hasty speed that he was that night with the emperor who having understanding of the coming of the king of england's ambassador would in no wise defer the time but sent incontinent for him his affection unto king harry the seventh was such that he rejoiced when he had an occasion to show him pleasure the ambassador having opportunity disclosed the sum of his embassy unto the emperor of whom he desired speedy expedition the which was granted so that the next day he was clearly dispatched with all the king's requests fully accomplished at which time he made no further tarriance but with post-horses rode incontinent that night toward calais again conducted thither with such number of horsemen as the emperor had appointed and at the opening of the gates there where the passengers were as ready to return into england as they were before in his advancing insomuch that he arrived at dover before ten of clock before noon and having post-horses in readiness came to the court at richmond that night where he taking his rest for that time until the morning repaired to the king at his first coming out of his gracest bedchamber toward his closet to hear mass whom when he saw he checked him for that he was not passed on his journey sir quoth he if it may stand with your highness's pleasure i have already been with the emperor and dispatched your affairs i trust to your grace's contentation and with that delivered unto the king the emperor's letters of credence the king being in a great confuse and wonder of his hasty speed with ready furniture of all his proceedings dissembled all his imagination and wonder in that matter and demanded of him whether he encountered not his pursuivant the which he sent unto him supposing him not to be scantly out of london 
with letters concerning a very necessary cause neglected in his commission and instructions the which the king coveted much to be sped yes forsooth sire quoth he i encountered him yesterday by the way and having understanding by your grace's letters of your pleasure therein have notwithstanding been so bold upon mine own discretion perceiving that matter to be very necessary in that behalf to dispatch the same and forasmuch as i have exceeded your grace's commission i most humbly require your gracious remission and pardon the king rejoicing inwardly not a little said again we do not only pardon you thereof but also give you our princely thanks both for the proceeding therein and also for your good and speedy exploit commanding him for that time to take his rest and to repair again after dinner for the farther relation of his embassy the king then went to mass and after at convenient time he went to dinner it is not to be doubted but that this ambassador hath been since his return with his great friends the bishop of winchester and sir thomas lovell to whom he hath declared the effect of all his speedy progress nor yet what joy they conceived thereof and after his departure from the king in the morning his highness sent for the bishop and sir thomas lovell to whom he declared the wonderful expedition of his ambassador commending therewith his excellent wit and in especial the invention and advancing of the matter left out of his commission and instructions the king's words rejoiced these worthy counsellors not a little forasmuch as he was of their preferment then when this ambassador remembered the king's commandment and saw the time draw fast on of his repair before the king and his council he prepared him in a readiness and resorted unto the place assigned by the king to declare his embassy without all doubt he reported the effect of all his affairs and proceedings so exactly with such gravity and eloquence that all the council that heard him could do no less but commend him esteeming his expedition to be almost beyond the capacity of man the king of his mere motion and gracious consideration gave him at that time for his diligent and faithful service the deanery of lincoln which at that time was one of the worthiest spiritual promotions that he gave under the degree of a bishopric and thus from thenceforward he grew more and more into estimation and authority and after was promoted by the king to be his almoner here may all men note the chance of fortune that followeth some whom she listeth to promote and even so to some her favor is contrary though they should travail never so much with urgent diligence and painful study that they could devise or imagine whereof for my part i have tasted of the experience now ye shall understand that all this tale that i have declared of his good expedition in the king's embassy i received it of his own mouth and report after his fall lying at that time in the great park of richmond i being then there attending upon him taken an occasion upon divers communications to tell me this journey with all the circumstances as i have here before rehearsed when death that favoreth none estate king or kaiser 
had taken that prudent prince king harry the seventh out of this present life on whose soul jesu have mercy who for his inestimable wisdom was noted and called in every christian region the second solomon what practices inventions and compasses were then used about that young prince king harry the eighth his only son and the great provision made for the funerals of the one and the costly devices for the coronation of the other with that virtuous queen catherine then the king's wife newly married i omit and leave the circumstances thereof to historiographers of chronicles of princes the which is no part mine endowment after all these solemnities and costly triumphs finished and that our natural young lusty and courageous prince and sovereign lord king harry the eighth entering into the flower of pleasant youth had taken upon him the regal sceptre and the imperial diadem of this fertile and plentiful realm of england which at that time flourished in all abundance of wealth and riches whereof he was inestimably garnished and furnished called then the golden world such grace of plenty reigned then within this realm now let us return again unto the almoner of whom i have taken upon me to write whose head was full of subtle wit and policy perceiving a plain path to walk in towards promotion he handled himself so politically that he found the means to be one of the king's counsel and to grow in good estimation and favor with the king to whom the king gave a house at bridewell in fleet street sometime sir richard empson's where he kept house for his family and he daily attended upon the king in the court being in his especial grace and favor having then great suit made unto him as counsellors most commonly have that be in favor his sentences and witty persuasions in the council chamber were always so pithy that they always as occasion moved them assigned him for his filed tongue and ornate eloquence to be their expositor unto the king's majesty in all their proceedings in whom the king conceived such a loving fantasy especially for that he was most earnest and readiest among all the council to advance the king's only will and pleasure without any respect to the case the king thereof perceived him to be a meet instrument for the accomplishment of his devised will and pleasure called him more near unto him and esteemed him so highly that his estimation and favor put all other ancient counselors out of their accustomed favor that they were in before insomuch as the king committed all his will and pleasure into his disposition and order who wrought so all his matters that all his endeavor was only to satisfy the king's mind knowing right well that it was the very vain and right course to bring him to high promotion the king was young and lusty disposed all to mirth and pleasure and to follow his desire and appetite nothing minding to travail in the busy affairs of this realm the which the almoner perceived very well and took upon him therefore to disburden the king of so weighty a charge and troublesome business putting the king in comfort that he shall not need to spare any time of his pleasure 
for any business that should necessarily happen in the council, as long as he, being there and having the king's authority and commandment, doubted not to see all things sufficiently furnished and perfected, the which would first make the king privy of all such matters as should pass through their hands before he would proceed to the finishing or determining of the same, whose mind and pleasure he would fulfill and follow to the uttermost, wherewith the king was wonderly pleased. And whereas the other ancient counselors would, according to the office of good counselors, divers times persuade the king to have some time an intercourse into the council, there to hear what was done in weighty matters, the which pleased the king nothing at all, for he loved nothing worse than to be constrained to do anything contrary to his royal will and pleasure, and that knew the almoner very well, having a secret intelligence of the king's natural inclination, and so fast as the other counsellors advised the king to leave his pleasure and to attend to the affairs of his realm, so busily did the almoner persuade him to the contrary, which delighted him much, and caused him to have the greater affection and love to the almoner. Thus the almoner ruled all them that before ruled him, such did his policy and wit bring to pass. Who was now in high favor but Master Almoner? Who had all the suit but Master Almoner? And who ruled all under the king but Master Almoner? Thus he proceeded still in favor. At last in came presents, gifts, and rewards so plentifully that I dare say he lacked nothing that might either please his fantasy or enrich his coffers. Fortune smiled so upon him, but to what end she brought him ye shall hear after. Therefore let all men to whom fortunes extendeth her grace not trust too much to her fickle favor and pleasant promises, under color whereof she carrieth venomous gall. For when she seeth her servant in most highest authority, and that he assureth himself most assuredly in her favor, then turneth she her visage and pleasant countenance unto a frowning cheer, and utterly forsaketh him. Such assurance is in her inconstant favor and sugared promise. Whose deceitful behavior hath not been hid among the wise sort of famous clerks that hath exclaimed her and written vehemently against her dissimulation and feigned favor, warning all men thereby, the less to regard her, and to have her in small estimation of any trust or faithfulness. This almoner, climbing thus hastily up fortune's wheel, that no man was of that estimation with the king as he was, for his wisdom and other witty qualities. He had a special gift of natural eloquence, with a filed tongue to pronounce the same, that he was able with the same to persuade and allure all men to his purpose. Proceeding thus in fortune's blissfulness, it chanced that the wars between the realms of England and France to be open, but upon what occasion I know not, insomuch as the king, being fully persuaded and resolved in his most royal person to invade his foreign enemies with a puissant army, to delay their halt brags within their own territory. 
wherefore it was thought very necessary that this royal enterprise should be speedily provided and plentifully furnished in every degree of things apt and convenient for the same the expedition whereof the king's highness thought no man's wit so meet for policy and painful travail as his well-beloved almoner's was to whom therefore he committed his whole affiance and trust therein and he being nothing scrupulous in anything that the king would command him to do and although it seemed to other very difficile yet took he upon him the whole charge and burden of all this business and proceeded so therein that he brought all things to a good pass and purpose in a right decent order as of all manner of victuals provisions and other necessaries convenient for so noble a voyage and puissant army all things being by him perfected and furnished the king not minding to delay or neglect the time appointed but with noble and valiant courage advanced to his royal enterprise passed the seas between dover and calais where he prosperously arrived and after some abode there of his grace as well for the arrival of his puissant army royal provisions and munitions as to consult about his princely affairs marched forward in good order of battle through the low country until he came to the strong town of terouanne to the which he laid his assault and assailed it so fiercely with continual assaults that within short space he caused them within to yield the town unto which place the emperor maximilian repaired unto the king our sovereign lord with puissant army like a mighty and friendly prince taking of the king his grace's wages as well for his own person as for his retinue the which is a rare thing seldom seen heard or read that an emperor to take wages and to fight under a king's banner thus after the king had obtained the possession of this puissant fort and set all things in due order for the defense and preservation of the same to his highness's use he departed from thence and marched toward the city of tournay and there again laid his siege to the which he gave so fierce and sharp assaults that they within were constrained of fine force to yield up the town unto his victorious majesty at which time he gave the almoner the bishopric of the same see for some part of recompense of his pain sustained in that journey and when the king had established all things there agreeable to his princely pleasure and furnished the same with noble valiant captains and men-of-war for the safeguard of the town against his enemies he returned again into england taking with him divers worthy persons of the peers of france as the duke of longueville the county clermont and divers other taken there in skirmish most victoriously after whose return immediately the see of lincoln fell void by the death of dr smith late bishop of that dignity the which benefice and promotion his grace gave unto his almoner bishop-elect of tournay who was not negligent to take possession thereof and made all the speed he could for his consecration the solemnization whereof ended he found the means to get the possession of all his predecessor's goods into his hands whereof i have seen divers times some part thereof furnish his house 
It was not long after that Dr. Bainbridge, Archbishop of York, died at Rome, being there the king's ambassador under Pope Julius, unto which benefice the king presented his new bishop of Lincoln, so that he had three bishoprics in one year given him. Then prepared he again of new as fast for his translation from the see of Lincoln unto the see of York after which solemnization done and he being in possession of the archbishopric of york and primas angliae thought himself sufficient to compare with canterbury and thereupon erected his cross in the court and in every other place as well in the presence of the archbishop of canterbury and in the precinct of his jurisdiction as elsewhere and forasmuch as canterbury claimeth superiority and obedience of york as he doth of all other bishops within this realm forasmuch as he is primas totius angliae and therefore claimeth as a token of an ancient obedience of york to abate the advancing of his cross in the presence of the cross of canterbury notwithstanding york nothing minding to desist from bearing of his cross in manner as is said before caused his cross to be advanced and borne before him as well in the presence of canterbury as elsewhere wherefore canterbury being moved therewith gave york a certain check for his presumption by reason whereof there engendered some grudge between canterbury and york and york perceiving the obedience that canterbury claimed to have of york intended to provide some such means that he would rather be superior in dignity to canterbury than to be either obedient or equal to him wherefore he obtained first to be made priest cardinal and legatus de latere unto whom the pope sent a cardinal's hat with certain bulls for his authority in that behalf yet by the way of communication ye shall understand that the pope sent him this hat as a worthy jewel of his honor dignity and authority the which was conveyed hither in a varlet's budget who seemed to all men to be but a person of small estimation whereof york being advertised of the baseness of the messenger and of the people's opinion and rumor thought it for his honor meet that so high a jewel should not be conveyed by so simple a messenger wherefore he caused him to be stayed by the way immediately after his arrival in england where he was newly furnished in all manner of apparel with all kind of costly silks which seemed decent for such an high ambassador and that done he was encountered upon blackheath and there received with a great assembly of prelates and lusty gallant gentlemen and from thence conducted and conveyed through london with great triumph then was great and speedy provision and preparation made in westminster abbey for the confirmation of his high dignity the which was executed by all the bishops and abbots nigh or about london in rich mitres and copes and other costly ornaments which was done in so solemn a wise as i have not seen the like unless it had been at the coronation of a mighty prince or king obtaining this dignity he thought himself meet to encounter with canterbury in his high jurisdiction before expressed and that also he was as meet to bear authority among the temporal powers 
as among the spiritual jurisdictions. Wherefore, remembering as well the taunts and checks before sustained of Canterbury, which he intended to redress, having a respect to the advancement of worldly honor, promotion, and great benefits, found the means with the king that he was made Chancellor of England, and Canterbury thereof dismissed, who had continued in that honorable room and office since long before the death of King Harry the Seventh. Now he being in possession of the chancellorship, endowed with the promotion of an archbishop, and Cardinal Legate also, de Latere, thought himself fully furnished with such authorities and dignities that he was able to surmount Canterbury in all ecclesiastical jurisdictions, having power to convocate Canterbury and other bishops within his precincts, to assemble at his convocation in any place within this realm where he would assign, taking upon him the correction of all matters in every diocese, having there through all the realm all manner of spiritual ministers, as commissaries, scribes, apparitors, and all other officers, to furnish his courts, visited also all spiritual houses, and presented by prevention whom he listed to their benefices. And to the advancing of his legatine honor and jurisdiction, he had masters of his faculties, masters ceremoniarum, and such other like officers, to the glorifying of his dignity. Then had he two great crosses of silver, whereof one of them was for his archbishopric, and the other for his legacy, borne always before him whithersoever he went or rode, by two of the most tallest and comeliest priests that he could get within all this realm. And to the increase of his gains he had also the bishopric of Durham and the abbey of St. Albans in Commendam, Howbeit after, when Bishop Fox of Winchester died, he surrendered Durham into the king's hands, and in lieu thereof took the bishopric of Winchester. Then he held also, as it were in farm, both Bath, Worcester, and Hereford, because the incumbents thereof were strangers born out of this realm, continuing always beyond the seas in their own native countries, or else at Rome, from whence they were sent by the Pope in legation into England to the king. And for their reward at their departure, the prudent King Harry the Seventh thought it better to reward them with that thing he himself could not keep than to defray or disperse anything of his treasure. And then they, being but strangers, thought it more meet for their assurance and to have their jurisdictions conserved and justly used to permit the cardinal to have their benefices for a convenient yearly sum of money to be paid them by exchanges in their countries, than to be troubled or burdened with the conveyance thereof unto them, so that all their spiritual promotions and jurisdictions of their bishoprics were clearly in his domain and disposition to prefer or promote whom he listed unto them. He had also a great number daily attending upon him, both of noblemen and worthy gentlemen, of great estimation and possessions, with no small number of the tallest yeomen that he could get in all this realm, insomuch that well was that nobleman and gentleman that might prefer any tall and comely yeoman unto his service. 
End of section one. Section two of The Life and Death of Cardinal Wolsey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Part two. Now to speak of the order of his house and officers, I think it necessary here to be remembered. First, ye shall understand that he had in his hall daily three especial tables furnished with three principal officers, that is to say, a steward, which was always a doctor or a priest, a treasurer, a knight, a comptroller, an esquire, which bear always within his house their white staves. Then had he a coffer, three marshals, two yeoman ushers, two grooms, and an almoner. He had in the hall kitchen two clerks of his kitchen, a clerk comptroller, a surveyor of the dresser, a clerk of his spicery. Also there in his hall kitchen he had two master cooks and twelve of other laborers, and children, as they called them, a yeoman of his scullery, and two other in his silver scullery, two yeomen of his pantry, and two grooms. Now in his privy kitchen he had a master cook, who went daily in damask satin, or velvet, with a chain of gold about his neck and two grooms with six laborers and children to serve in that place in the larder there a yeoman and a groom in the scalding house a yeoman and two grooms in the scullery there two persons in the buttery two yeomen and two grooms with two other pages in the pantry two yeomen two grooms and two pages and in the ewry likewise in the cellar three yeomen, two grooms, and two pages, besides a gentleman for the month. In the chaundry, three persons. In the wafery, two. In his wardrobe of beds, the master and ten other persons. In the laundry, a yeoman, a groom, and three pages. Of purveyors, two and one groom. In the bakehouse, a yeoman and two grooms. In the woodyard, a yeoman and a groom, in the garner one, in the garden a yeoman and two laborers. Now at the gate he had of porters two tall yeomen and two grooms, a yeoman of his barge. In the stable he had a master of his horses, a clerk of the stable, a yeoman of the same, a saddler, a farrier, a yeoman of his chariot, a sumpterman, a yeoman of his stirrup, a muleteer sixteen grooms of his stable, every one of them keeping four great geldings, in the almsery a yeoman and a groom. Now will I declare to you the officers of his chapel, and singing men of the same. First he had there a dean, who was always a great clerk and a divine, a sub-dean, a repeater of the choir, a gospeler, a pistoler, and twelve singing priests. Of seculars he had first a master of his children, twelve singing children, sixteen singing men, with a servant to attend upon the said children. In the revestry a yeoman and two grooms. Then were there divers retainers of cunning singing men that came at divers sundry principal feasts. But 
To speak of his furniture of his chapel passeth my capacity to declare the number of the costly ornaments and rich jewels that were occupied in the same continually. For I have seen there in a procession worn forty-four copes of one suit, very rich, besides the sumptuous crosses, candlesticks, and other necessary ornaments to the comely furniture of the same. Now shall we understand that he had two cross-bearers and two pillar-bearers, and in his chamber all these persons, that is to say, his high-chamberlain, his vice-chamberlain, twelve gentlemen-ushers, daily waiters, besides two in his privy-chamber, and of gentlemen-waiters in his privy-chamber he had six, and also he had of lords nine or ten, who had each of them allowed two servants, and the Earl of Derby had allowed five men. Then had he of gentlemen, as cup-bearers, carvers, sewers, and gentlemen-daily waiters, forty persons. Of yeoman-ushers he had six. Of grooms in his chamber he had eight. Of yeomen of his chamber he had forty-six daily to attend upon his person. He had also a priest there, which was his almoner, to attend upon his table at dinner. Of doctors and chaplains attending in his closet to say daily mass before him, he had sixteen persons, and a clerk of his closet. Also he had two secretaries and two clerks of his signet, and four counsellors learned in the laws of this realm. And forasmuch as he was Chancellor of England, it was necessary for him to have divers officers of the chancery to attend daily upon him for the better furniture of the same. That is to say, first, he had a clerk of the crown, a riding clerk, a clerk of the hanaper, a chafer of wax. Then had he a clerk of the check, as well to check his chaplains as his yeomen of the chamber. He had also four footmen, which were apparelled in rich running coats, whensoever he rode any journey. Then had he an herald at arms, and a sergeant at arms, a physician, an apothecary, four minstrels, a keeper of his tents, an armorer, an instructor of his wards, two yeomen in his wardrobe, and a keeper of his chamber in the court. He had also daily in his house the surveyor of York, a clerk of the green cloth, and an auditor. All this number of persons were daily attendant upon him in his house, down-lying and uprising, and at meals there was continually in his chamber a board kept for his chamberlains and gentlemen-ushers, having with them a mess of the young lords, and another for gentlemen. Besides all these, there was never an officer and gentleman, or any other worthy person in his house, but he was allowed some three, some two servants, and all other one at the least, which amounted to a great number of persons. Now have I showed you the order of his house, and what officers and servants he had, according to his checker-roll, attending daily upon him, besides his retainers and other persons being suitors, that most commonly were fed in his hall. And whensoever we shall see any more such subjects within this realm, that shall maintain any such estate and household, 
I am content he be advanced above him in honor and estimation. Therefore here I make an end of his household, whereof the number was about the sum of five hundred persons, according to his checker roll. End of section two. Section three of The Life and Death of Cardinal Wolsey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Part three. You have heard of the order and officers of his house. Now I do intend to proceed forth unto other of his proceedings, for after he was thus furnished, in manner as I have before rehearsed unto you, he was twice sent in embassy unto the Emperor Charles V, that now reigneth, and father unto King Philip, now our sovereign lord. Forasmuch as the old Emperor Maximilian was dead, and for divers urgent causes touching the King's majesty, it was thought good that in so weighty a matter, and to so noble a prince, that the cardinal was most meet to be sent on so worthy an embassy. Wherefore, he being ready to take upon him the charge thereof, was furnished in all degrees and purposes most likest a great prince, which was much to the high honor of the king's majesty, and of this realm. For first in his proceeding he was furnished like a cardinal of high estimation, having all things thereto correspond and agreeable. His gentlemen, being in number very many, clothed in livery-coats of crimson velvet, of the most purest color that might be invented, with chains of gold about their necks, and all his yeomen and other mean officers were in coats of fine scarlet, guarded with black velvet a hand broad. He being thus furnished in this manner was twice sent unto the emperor into Flanders, the emperor lying then in Bruges who entertained our ambassador very highly, discharging him and all his train of their charges. For there was no house within all Bruges wherein any gentleman of the Lord Ambassadors lay, or had recourse, but that the owners of the houses were commanded by the Emperor's officers, that they, upon pain of their lives, should take no money for anything that the Cardinal's servants should take or dispend in victuals, no, although they were disposed to make any costly banquets, furthermore commanding their said hosts to see that they lacked no such thing as they desired or required to have for their pleasures. Although the emperor's officers every night went through the town from house to house where as any Englishmen lay or resorted, and there served liveries for all night, which was done after this manner. First, the emperor's officers brought into the house a cast of fine manchet bread, two great silver pots with wine, and a pound of fine sugar, white lights and yellow, a bowl or goblet of silver to drink in, and every night a staff torch. This was the order of their liveries every night, and then in the morning when the officers came to fetch away their stuff, then would they accompt with the host for the gentleman's costs spent in that night and day before. Thus the emperor entertained the cardinal and all his train for the time of his embassy there. 
and that done he returned home again into england with great triumph being no less in estimation with the king than he was before but rather much more now will i declare unto you his order in going to westminster hall daily in the term season first before coming out of his privy chamber he heard most commonly every day two masses in his privy closet and there then said his daily service with his chaplain and as i heard his chaplain say being a man of credence and of excellent learning that the cardinal what business or weighty matters soever he had in the day he never went to his bed with any part of his divine service unsaid yea not so much as one collect wherein i doubt not but he deceived the opinion of divers persons and after mass he would return in his privy chamber again and being advertised of the furniture of his chambers without with noblemen and gentlemen and other persons would issue out into them apparelled all in red in the habit of a cardinal which was either of fine scarlet or else of crimson satin taffety damask or kaffa the best that he could get for the money and upon his head a round pillion with a nicky of black velvet set to the same in the inner side he had also a tippet of fine sables about his neck holding in his hand a very fair orange whereof the meat or substance within was taken out and filled up again with the part of a sponge wherein was vinegar and other confections against the pestilent airs to the which he most commonly smelt unto passing among the press or else when he was pestered with many suitors there was also borne before him first the great seal of england and then his cardinal's hat by a nobleman or some worthy gentleman right solemnly bareheaded and as soon as he was entered into his chamber of presence where was attending his coming to await upon him to westminster hall as well noblemen and other worthy gentlemen as noblemen and gentlemen of his own family thus passing forth with two great crosses of silver borne before him with also two great pillars of silver and his pursuivant at arms with a great mace of silver gilt then his gentlemen ushers cried and said on my lords and masters make way for my lord's grace thus passed he down from his chambers through the hall and when he came to the hall door there was attendant for him his mule trapped all together in crimson velvet and gilt stirrups when he was mounted with his cross-bearers and pillar-bearers also upon great horses trapped with red scarlet then marched he forward with his train and furniture in manner as i have declared having about him four footmen with gilt poleaxes in their hands and thus he went until he came to westminster hall door and there lighted and went after this manner up through the hall into the chancery albeit he would most commonly stay a while at a bar made for him a little beneath the chancery on the right hand and there commune some time with the judges and some time with other persons and that done he would repair into the chancery sitting there till eleven of the clock hearing suitors and determining of divers matters and from thence 
he would divers times go into the star chamber as occasion did serve where he spared neither high nor low but judged every estate according to their merits and deserts he used every sunday to repair to the court being then for the most part at greenwich in the term with all his former order taking his barge at his privy stairs furnished with tall yeomen standing upon the bales and all the gentlemen being within with him and landed again at the crane in the vintry and from thence he rode upon his mule with his crosses his pillars his hat and the great seal through thames street until he came to billingsgate or thereabout and there took his barge again and rode to greenwich where he was nobly received of the lords and chief officers of the king's house as the treasurer and controller with others and so conveyed unto the king's chamber his crosses commonly standing for the time of his abode in the court on the one side of the king's cloth of estate he being thus in the court it was wonderly furnished with noblemen and gentlemen much otherwise than it was before his coming and after dinner among the lords having some consultation with the king or with the council he would depart homeward with like state and this order he used continually as opportunity did serve thus in great honor triumph and glory he reigned a long season ruling all things within this realm appertaining unto the king by his wisdom and also all other weighty matters of foreign regions with which the king of this realm had any occasion to intermeddle all ambassadors of foreign potentates were always dispatched by his discretion to whom they had always access for their dispatch his house was also always resorted and furnished with noblemen gentlemen and other persons with going and coming in and out feasting and banqueting all ambassadors diverse times and other strangers right nobly end of section three section four of the life and death of cardinal wolsey this librivox recording is in the public domain read by john greenman part four and when it pleased the king's majesty for his recreation to repair unto the cardinal's house as he did divers times in the year at which time there wanted no preparations or goodly furniture with viands of the finest sort that might be provided for money or friendship such pleasures were then devised for the king's comfort and consolation as might be invented or by man's wit imagined the banquets were set forth with masks and mummeries in so gorgeous a sort and costly manner that it was an heaven to behold there wanted no dames or damsels meet or apt to dance with the maskers or to garnish the place for a time with other goodly disports then was there all kind of music and harmony set forth with excellent voices both of men and children i have seen the king suddenly come in thither in a mask with a dozen other maskers all in garments like shepherds made of fine cloth of gold and fine crimson satin paned and caps of the same with visors of good proportion of his their hairs and beards either of 
fine gold wire, or else of silver, and some being of black silk, having sixteen torch-bearers besides their drums, and other persons attending upon them with visors, and clothed all in satin of the same colors. And at his coming, and before he came into the hall, ye shall understand that he came by water to the water-gate without any noise, where against his coming were laid charged many chambers, at whose landing they were all shot off, which made such a rumble in the air that it was like thunder. It made all the noblemen, ladies, and gentlewomen to muse what it should mean coming so suddenly, they sitting quietly at a solemn banquet. Under this sort, first ye shall perceive that the tables were set in the chamber of presence, banquet-wise covered, my lord cardinal sitting under the cloth of estate, and there having his service all alone, and then was there set a lady and a nobleman, or a gentleman and a gentlewoman, throughout all the tables in the chamber on the one side, which were made and joined, as it were, but one table all which order and device was done and devised by the lord sands lord chamberlain to the king and also by sir harry guilford controller to the king then immediately after this great shot of guns the cardinal desired the said lord chamberlain and controller to look what this sudden shot should mean as though he knew nothing of the matter they thereupon looking out of the window into thames returned again and showed him that it seemed to them there should be some noblemen and strangers arrived at his bridge as ambassadors from some foreign prince with that quoth the cardinal i shall desire you because ye can speak french to take the pains to go down into the hall to encounter and to receive them according to their estates and to conduct them to this chamber, where they shall see us, and all these noble personages, sitting merrily at our banquet, desiring them to sit down with us, and to take part of our fare and pastime. Then they went incontinent down into the hall, where they received them with twenty new torches, and conveyed them up into the chamber with such a number of drums and fifes as I have seldom seen together at one time in any mask. At their arrival into the chamber, two and two together, they went directly before the cardinal where he sat, saluting him very reverently, to whom the Lord Chamberlain for them said, Sir, forasmuch as they be strangers and can speak no English, they have desired me to declare unto your grace thus they having understanding of this your triumphant banquet where was assembled such a number of excellent fair dames could do no less under the supertation of your good grace but to repair hither to view as well their incomparable beauty as for to accompany them at mum chance and then after to dance with them and so to have of them acquaintance and sir they furthermore require of your grace license to accomplish the cause of their repair to whom the cardinal answered that he was very well contented they should so do then the maskers went first and saluted all the dames as they sat and then returned to the most worthiest and there opened a cup full of gold 
with crowns and other pieces of coin to whom they set diverse pieces to cast at thus in this manner perusing all the ladies and gentlewomen and to some they lost and of some they won and thus done they returned unto the cardinal with great reverence pouring down all the crowns in the cup which was about two hundred crowns at all quoth the cardinal and so cast the dice and won them all at a cast whereat was great joy made then quoth the cardinal to my lord chamberlain i pray you quoth he show them that it seemeth me how there should be among them some noble man whom i suppose to be much more worthy of honor to sit and occupy this room and place than i to whom i would most gladly if i knew him surrender my place according to my duty then spake my lord chamberlain unto them in french declaring my lord cardinal's mind and they rounding him again in the ear my lord chamberlain said to my lord cardinal sir they confess quoth he that among them there is such a noble personage among whom if your grace can appoint him from the other he is contented to disclose himself and to accept your place most worthily with that the cardinal taking a good advisement among them at the last quoth he me seemeth the gentleman with the black beard should be even he and with that he arose out of his chair and offered the same to the gentleman in the black beard with his cap in his hand the person to whom he offered then his chair was sir edward neville a comely knight of a goodly personage that much more resembled the king's person in that mask than any other the king hearing and perceiving the cardinal so deceived in his estimation and choice could not forbear laughing but plucked down his visor and master neville's and dashed out with such a pleasant countenance and cheer that all noble estates there assembled seeing the king to be there amongst them rejoiced very much the cardinal eftsoons desired his highness to take the place of estate to whom the king answered that he would go first and shift his apparel and so departed and went straight into my lord's bedchamber where was a great fire made and prepared for him and there new apparelled him with rich and princely garments and in the time of the king's absence the dishes of the banquet were clean taken up and the tables spread again with new and sweet perfumed cloths every man sitting still until the king and his maskers came in among them again every man being newly apparelled then the king took his seat under the cloth of estate commanding no man to remove but sit still as they did before then in came a new banquet before the king's majesty and to all the rest through the tables wherein i suppose was served two hundred dishes or above of wondrous costly meats and delices subtly devised thus passed they forth the whole night with banqueting dancing and other triumphant devices to the great comfort of the king and pleasant regard of the nobility there assembled all this matter i have declared at large because ye shall understand what joy and delight the cardinal had to see his prince and sovereign lord 
in his house, so nobly entertained and pleased, which was always his only study, to devise things to his comfort, not passing of the charges or expenses. It delighted him so much to have the king's pleasant princely presence, that no thing was to him more delectable than to cheer his sovereign lord, to whom he owed so much obedience and loyalty, as reason required no less, all things well considered. End of section 4 Section 5 of The Life and Death of Cardinal Wolsey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Part 5. Thus passed the Cardinal his life and time, from day to day and year to year, in such great wealth, joy, and triumph, and glory, having always on his side the king's especial favor, until fortune of whose favor no man is longer assured than she is disposed, began to wax something wroth with his prosperous estate, thought she would devise a mean to abate his high port, wherefore she procured Venus, the insatiate goddess, to be her instrument. To work her purpose she brought the king in love with a gentlewoman that, after she perceived and felt the king's good will towards her, and how diligent he was both to please her and to grant all her requests, she wrought the cardinal much displeasure, as hereafter shall be more at large declared. This gentlewoman, the daughter of Sir Thomas Bolin, being at that time but only a bachelor knight, the which after, for the love of his daughter, was promoted to higher dignities, he bare at divers several times for the most part all the rooms of estimation in the king's house, as comptroller, treasurer, vice-chamberlain, and lord-chamberlain. Then was he made Viscount Rockford, and at the last created Earl of Wiltshire, and Knight of the Noble Order of the Garter, and for his more increase of gain and honor he was made Lord Privy Seal and most chiefest of the king's privy council continuing therein until his son and daughter did incur the king's indignation and displeasure the king fantasized so much his daughter anne that almost everything began to grow out of frame and good order to tell you how the king's love began to take place and what followed thereof i will even as much as in me lieth declare you this gentlewoman, Mistress Anne Boleyn, being very young, was sent into the realm of France, and there made one of the French queen's women, continuing there until the French queen died, and then was she sent for home again, and being again with her father, he made such means that she was admitted to be one of Queen Catherine's maids, among whom, for her excellent gesture and behavior, did excel all other insomuch as the king began to kindle the brand of amour, which was not known to any person, nor scantly to her own person. Insomuch my lord Percy, the son and heir of the Earl of Northumberland, who then attended upon the lord cardinal, and was also his servitor, and when it chanced the lord cardinal at any time to repair to the court, the Lord Percy would then resort for his pastime unto the Queen's chamber, 
and there would fall in dalliance among the queen's maidens being at the last more conversant with mistress anne boleyn than with any other so that there grew much a secret love between them that at length they were insured together intending to marry the which thing came to the king's knowledge who was then much offended wherefore he could hide no longer his secret affection but revealed his secret intendment unto my lord cardinal in that behalf and consulted with him to infringe the pre-contract between them insomuch that after my lord cardinal was departed from the court and returned home to his place at westminster not forgetting the king's request and counsel being in his gallery called there before him the said lord percy unto his presence and before us his servants of his chamber saying thus unto him i marvel not a little quoth he of thy peevish folly that thou wouldst tangle and ensure thyself with a foolish girl yonder in the court i mean anne boleyn dost thou not consider the estate that god hath called thee unto in this world for after the death of thy noble father thou art most like to inherit and possess one of the most worthiest earldoms of this realm therefore it had been most meet and convenient for thee to have sued for the consent of thy father in that behalf and to have also made the king's highness privy thereto requiring then his princely favor submitting all thy whole proceeding in all such matters unto his highness who would not only accept thankfully your submission but would i assure thee provide so for your purpose therein that he would advance you much more nobly and have matched you according to your estate and honor whereby ye might have grown so by your wisdom and honorable behavior into the king's high estimation that it should have been much to your increase of honor but now behold what ye have done through your wilfulness ye have not only offended your natural father but also your most gracious sovereign lord and matched yourself with one such as neither the king nor yet your father will be agreeable with the matter and hereof i put you out of doubt that i will send for your father and at his coming he shall either break this unadvised contract or else disinherit thee for ever the king's majesty himself will complain to thy father on thee and require no less at his hands than i have said whose highness intended to have preferred her unto another person with whom the king hath travailed already and being almost at a point with the same person although she knoweth it not yet hath the king most like a politic and prudent prince conveyed the matter in such sort that she upon the king's motion will be i doubt not right glad and agreeable to the same sir quoth the lord percy all weeping i knew nothing of the king's pleasure therein for whose displeasure i am very sorry i considered that i was of good years and thought myself sufficient to provide me of a convenient wife whereas my fancy served me best not doubting but that my lord my father would have been right well persuaded and though she be a simple maid and having but a knight to her father yet is she descended of right noble parentage 
as by her mother she is nigh of the norfolk blood and of her father's side lineally descended of the earl of ormond he being one of the earl's heirs general why should i then sir be anything scrupulous to match with her whose estate of descent is equivalent with mine when i shall be in most dignity therefore i most humbly require your grace of your especial favor herein and also to entreat the king's most royal majesty most lowly on my behalf for his princely benevolence in this matter the which i cannot deny or forsake lo sirs quoth the cardinal ye may see what conformity or wisdom is in this wilful boy's head i thought that when thou heardest me declare the king's intended pleasure and travail herein thou wouldst have relented and wholly submitted thyself and all thy wilful and unadvised fact to the king's royal will and prudent pleasure to be fully disposed and ordered by his grace's disposition as his highness should seem good sir so i would quoth the lord percy but in this matter i have gone so far before many so worthy witnesses that i know not how to avoid myself nor to discharge my conscience why thinkest thou quoth the cardinal that the king and i know not what we have to do in as weighty matter as this yes quoth he i warrant thee albeit i can see in thee no submission to the purpose forsooth my lord quoth my lord percy if it please your grace i will submit myself wholly to the king's majesty and grace in this matter my conscience being discharged of the weighty burthen of my pre-contract well then quoth the cardinal i will send for your father out of the north parts and he and we shall take such order for the avoiding of this thy hasty folly as shall be by the king thought most expedient and in the mean season i charge thee and in the king's name command thee that thou presume not once to resort into her company as thou intendest to avoid the king's high indignation and this said he rose up and went into his chamber then was the earl of northumberland sent for in all haste in the king's name who upon knowledge of the king's pleasure made quick speed to the court and at his first coming out of the north he made his first repair unto my lord cardinal at whose mouth he was advertised of the cause of his hasty sending for being in my lord cardinal's gallery with him in secret communication a long while and after their long talk my lord cardinal called for a cup with wine and drinking together they brake up and so departed the earl upon whom we were commanded to wait to convey him to his servants and in his going away when he came to the gallery's end he sat him down upon a form that stood there for the waiters some time to take their ease and being there set called his son the lord percy unto him and said in our presence thus in effect son quoth he thou hast always been a proud presumptuous disdainful and a very unthrift waster and even so hast thou now declared thyself therefore what joy what comfort what pleasure or solace should i conceive in thee that thus without discretion and advisement hast misused thyself having no manner of regard to me thy natural father 
nor in especial unto thy sovereign lord to whom all honest and loyal subjects bear faithful and humble obedience nor yet to the wealth of thine own estate but hath so unadvisedly ensured thyself to her for whom thou hast purchased the the king's displeasure intolerable for any subject to sustain but that his grace of his mere wisdom doth consider the lightness of thy head and wilful qualities of thy person his displeasure and indignation were sufficient to cast me and all my posterity into utter subversion and desolation but he being my especial and singular good lord and favorable prince and my lord cardinal my good lord hath and doth clearly excuse me in thy lewd fact and doth rather lament thy lightness than malign the same and hath devised an order to be taken for thee to whom both thou and i be more bound than we be able well to consider i pray to god that this may be to thee a sufficient monition and warning to use thyself more wittier hereafter for thus i assure thee if thou dost not amend thy prodigality thou wilt be the last earl of our house for of thy natural inclination thou art disposed to be wasteful prodigal and to consume all that thy progenitors have with great travail gathered together and kept with honor but having the king's majesty my singular good and gracious lord i intend god willing so to dispose my succession that ye shall consume thereof but little for i do not purpose i assure thee to make thee mine heir for praises be to god i have more choice of boys who i trust will prove themselves much better and use them more like unto nobility among whom i will choose and take the best and most likeliest to succeed me now masters and good gentlemen quoth he unto us it may be your chances hereafter when i am dead to see the proof of these things that i have spoken to my son prove as true as i have spoken them yet in the mean season i desire you all to be his friends and to tell him his fault when he doth amiss wherein ye shall show yourselves to be much his friends and with that he took his leave of us and said to his son thus go your ways and attend upon my lord's grace your master and see that you do your duty and so departed and went his way down through the hall into his barge then after long debating and consultation upon the lord percy's assurance it was devised that the same should be infringed and dissolved and that the lord percy should marry with one of the earl of shrewsbury's daughters as he did after by means whereof the former contract was clearly undone wherewith mistress anne boleyn was greatly offended saying that if it lay ever in her power she would work the cardinal as much displeasure as she did indeed after and yet was he nothing to blame for he practised nothing in that matter but it was the king's only device and even as my lord percy was commanded to avoid her company even so was she commanded to avoid the court and sent home again to her father for a season whereat she smoked for all this while she knew nothing of the king's intended purpose end of section five
Section six of the Life and Death of Cardinal Wolsey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Part six. But ye may see when fortune beginneth to lower how she can compass a matter to work displeasure by a far fetch. For now, mark, good reader, the grudge, how it began, that in process of time burst out to the utter undoing of the cardinal. O Lord, what a God art thou, that workest thy secrets so wonderfully, which be not perceived until they be brought to pass and finished. Mark this history following, good reader, and note every circumstance, and thou shalt espy at thine eye the wonderful work of God against such persons as forgetteth God and his great benefits. Mark, I say, mark them well. After that all these troublesome matters of my Lord Percy's were brought to a good stay, and all things finished that was before devised, Mistress Anne Boleyn was revoked unto the court, where she flourished after in great estimation and favor, having always a privy indignation unto the cardinal for breaking of the pre-contract made between my Lord Percy and her, supposing that it had been his own device and will and none other, not yet being privy to the king's secret mind, although that he had a great affection unto her. Howbeit, after she knew the king's pleasure, and the great love that he bare her in the bottom of his stomach, then began she to look very halt and stout, having all manner of jewels or rich apparel that might be gotten with money. It was therefore judged by and by through all the court of every man that, she being in such favor, might work masteries with the king, and obtain any suit of him for her friends. And all this while, she being in this estimation in all places, it is no doubt but good Queen Catherine, having this gentlewoman daily attending upon her, both heard by report and perceived before her eyes, the matter how it framed against her, good lady, although she showed, nay to mistress anne nay unto the king any spark or kind of grudge or displeasure but took and accepted all things in good part and with wisdom and great patience dissimuled the same having mistress anne in more estimation for the king's sake than she had before declaring herself thereby to be a perfect griselda as her patient acts shall hereafter more evidently to all men be declared. The king waxed so far in amours with this gentlewoman that he knew not how much he might advance her. This perceiving the great lords of the council bearing a secret grudge against the cardinal, because that they could not rule in the scene well for him as they would, who kept them low, and ruled them as well as other mean subjects, whereat they caught an occasion to invent a mean to bring him out of the king's high favor, and them into more authority of rule and civil governance. After long and secret consultation amongst themselves, how to bring their malice to effect against the cardinal, they knew right well that it was very difficile for them to do anything directly of themselves wherefore they perceiving the great affection that the king bare lovingly unto mistress anne boleyn fantasying in their heads 
that she should be for them a sufficient and apt instrument to bring their malicious purpose to pass, with her they often consulted in this matter. And she, having both a very good wit and also an inward desire to be revenged of the cardinal, was as agreeable to their requests as they were themselves. Wherefore there was no more to do but only to imagine some presented circumstance to induce their malicious accusations, insomuch that there was imagined and invented among them divers imaginations and subtle devices how this matter should be brought about. The enterprise thereof was so dangerous that, though they would fain have often attempted the matter with the king, yet they durst not, for they knew the great loving affection and especial favor that the king bare to the cardinal, and also they feared the wonder-wit of the cardinal. For this they understood very well, that if their matter that they should propone against him were not grounded upon a just and an urgent cause, the king's favor being such towards him and his wit such, that he would with policy vanquish all their purpose and travail, and then lie in wait to work them an utter destruction and subversion. Wherefore they were compelled, all things considered, to forbear their enterprise until they might espy a more convenient time and occasion. And yet the cardinal, espying the great zeal that the king had conceived in this gentlewoman, ordered himself to please as well the king as her, dissimulating the matter that lay hid in his breast, and prepared great banquets and solemn feasts to entertain them both at his own house. And thus the world began to grow into wonderful inventions not heard of before in this realm. The love between the king and this gorgeous lady grew to such a perfection that divers imaginations were imagined, whereof I leave to speak until I come to the place where I may have more occasion. End of section 6 Section 7 of The Life and Death of Cardinal Wolsey This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Part 7 Then began a certain grudge to arise between the French king and the Duke of Bourbon, insomuch as the Duke, being vassal to the House of France, was constrained for the safeguard of his person to flee his dominions and to forsake his territory and country, doubting the king's great malice and indignation. The cardinal, having thereof intelligence, compassed in his head that if the king our sovereign lord, having an occasion of wars with the realm of France, might retain the duke to be his general in his wars there, inasmuch as the duke was fled unto the emperor to invite him also to stir wars against the French king. The cardinal, having all this imagination in his head, thought it good to move the king in this matter, and after the king was once advertised hereof, and conceived the cardinal's imagination and invention, he dreamed of this matter more and more, until at the last it came in question among the council in consultation, so that it was there finally concluded that an embassy should be sent to the emperor about this matter with whom it was concluded that the king and the emperor should join in these wars against the French king, and that the Duke of Bourbon should be our sovereign lord's champion and general in the field. 
who had appointed him a great number of good soldiers over and besides the emperor's army which was not small and led by one of his own noblemen and also that the king should pay the duke his wages and his retinue monthly insomuch as sir john russell who was after earl of bedford lay continually beyond the seas in a secret place assigned both for to receive the king's money and to pay the same monthly to the duke so that the duke began fierce war with the french king in his own territory and dukedom which the french king had confiscated and seized into his hands yet not known to the duke's enemies that he had any aid of the king our sovereign lord and thus he wrought the french king much trouble and displeasure insomuch as the french king was compelled of fine force to put harness on his back and to prepare a puissant army royal and in his own person to advance to defend and resist the duke's power and malice the duke having understanding of the king's advancement was compelled of force to take pavia a strong town in italy with his host for their security whereas the king besieged him and encamped him wondrous strongly intending to enclose the duke within this town that he should not issue yet notwithstanding the duke would and did many times issue and skirmish with the king's army now let us leave the king in his camp before pavia and return again to the lord cardinal who seemed to be more french than imperial but how it came to pass i cannot declare you but the french king lying in his camp sent secretly into england a privy person a very witty man to treat of a peace between him and the king our sovereign lord whose name was john joachin he was kept as secret as might be that no man had intelligence of his repair for he was no frenchman but an italian born a man before of no estimation in france or known to be in favor with his master but to be a merchant and for his subtle wit elected to entreat of such matters as the king had commanded him by embassy this joachim after his arrival here in england was secretly conveyed unto the king's manor of richmond and there remained until whitsuntide at which time the cardinal resorted thither and kept there the said feast very solemnly in which season my lord caused this joachim divers times to dine with him whose talk and behavior seemed to be witty sober and wondrous discreet he continued in england long after until he had as it seemed brought his purposed embassy to pass which he had in commission for after this there was sent out immediately a restraint unto sir john russell into those parts where he made his abiding beyond the seas that he should retain and keep back that month's wages still in his hands which should have been paid unto the duke of bourbon until the king's pleasure were to him further known for want of which money at the day appointed of payment the duke and his retinue were greatly dismayed and sore disappointed and when they saw that their money was not brought unto them as it was wont to be and being in so dangerous a case for want of victuals which was wondrous scant and dear there was many imaginations what should be the cause of the let thereof some said this and some said they wist never what so that they mistrusted no thing less than the very cause thereof 
insomuch at the last what for want of victuals and other necessaries which could not be gotten within the town the captains and soldiers began to grudge and mutter and at the last for lack of victual were like all to perish they being in this extremity came before the duke of bourbon their captain and said sir we must be of very force and necessity compelled to yield us into the danger of our enemies and better it were for us so to do than here to starve like dogs when the duke heard their lamentations and understood the extremity that they were brought unto for lack of money he said again unto them sirs quoth he ye are both valiant men and of noble courage who have served here under me right worthily and for your necessity whereof i am participant i do not a little lament howbeit i shall desire you as ye are noble in hearts and courage so to take patience for a day or twain and if succor come not then from the king of england as i doubt nothing that he will deceive us i will well agree that we shall all put ourselves and all our lives unto the mercy of our enemies wherewith they were all agreeable and expecting the coming of the king's money the space of three days the which days passed the duke seeing no remedy called his noblemen and captains and soldiers before him and all weeping said o oh, ye noble captains and valiant men my gentle companions i see no remedy in this necessity but either we must yield us unto our enemies or else famish and to yield the town and ourselves i know not the mercy of our enemies and as for my part i pass not of their cruelties for i know very well i shall suffer most cruel death if i come once into their hands it is not for myself therefore that i do lament but it is for your sakes it is for your lives it is also for the safeguard of your persons for so that ye might escape the danger of your enemies hands i would most gladly suffer death therefore good companions and noble soldiers i shall require you all considering the dangerous misery and calamity that we stand in at this present to sell our lives most dearly rather than to be murdered like beasts if ye will follow my counsel we will take upon us this night to give our enemies an assault to their camp and by that means we may either escape or else give them an overthrow and thus it were better to die in the field like men than to live in captivity and misery as prisoners to which they all agreed then quoth the duke ye perceive that our enemies hath encamped us with a strong camp and that there is no way to enter but one which is so planted with great ordnance and force of men that it is not possible to enter that way to fight with our enemies without great danger and also ye see that now of late they have had small doubt of us insomuch as they have kept but slender watch therefore my policy and device shall be this that about the dead time of the night when our enemies be most quiet at rest shall issue from us a number of the most deliverest soldiers to assault their camp who shall give the assault right fiercely even directly against the entry of the camp which is almost invincible your fierce and sharp assault shall be to them in the camp so doubtful 
that they shall be compelled to turn the strength of their entry that lieth over against your assault to beat you from the assault then will i issue out at the postern and come to the place of their strength newly turned and there ere they be where will i enter and fight with them at the same place where their guns and strength lay before and so come to the rescue of you of the assault and winning their ordnance which they have turned and beat them with their own pieces and then we joining together in the field i trust we shall have a fair hand of them this device pleased them wondrous well then prepared they all that day for the purposed device and kept them secret and close without any noise or shot of pieces within the town which gave their enemies the less fear of any trouble that night but every man went to their rest within their tents and lodgings quietly nothing mistrusting that after ensued then when all the king's host was at rest the assailants issued out of the town without any noise according to the former appointment and gave a fierce and cruel assault at the place appointed that they within the camp had as much ado to defend as was possible and even as the duke had before declared to his soldiers they within were compelled to turn their shot that lay at their entry against the assailants with that issued the duke and with him about fifteen or sixteen thousand men or more and secretly in the night his enemies being not privy of his coming until he was entered the field and at his first entry he was master of all the ordnance that lay there and slew the gunners and charged the said pieces and bent them against his enemies of whom he slew wondrously a great number he cut down tents and pavilions and murdered them within them or they wist of his coming suspecting nothing less than the duke's entry so that he won the field or even the king could arise to the rescue who was taken in his lodging or ever he was armed and when the duke had obtained the field and the french king taken prisoner his men slain and his tents robbed and spoiled which were wondrous rich and in the spoil searching of the king's treasure in his coffers there was found among them the league newly concluded between the king of england and the french king under the great seal of england which once by him perceived he began to smell the impediment of his money which should have come to him from the king having upon due search of this matter further intelligence that all this matter and his utter undoing was concluded and devised by the cardinal of england the duke conceived such an indignation hereupon against the cardinal that after he had established all things there in good order and security he went incontinent unto rome intending there to sack the town and to have taken the pope prisoner where at his first assault of the walls he was the first man that was there slain yet notwithstanding his captains continued there the assault and in conclusion won the town and the pope fled unto castle angel where he continued long after in great calamity i have written thus this history at large because it was thought that the cardinal gave the chief occasion of all this mischief ye may perceive what thing soever a man purposeth be he prince or prelate yet notwithstanding god disposeth all things at his will and pleasure wherefore it is great folly for any wise man to take any weighty enterprise of himself 
trusting altogether to his own wit, not calling for grace to assist him in all his proceedings. I have known and seen in my days that princes and great men who would either assemble at any parliament or in any other business first would most reverently call to god for his gracious assistance therein and now i see the contrary wherefore me seems that they trust more in their own wisdoms and imaginations than they do to god's help and disposition and therefore often they speed thereafter and their matters take such success therefore not only in this history but in divers others ye may perceive right evident examples and yet i see no man in authority or high estate almost regard or have any respect to the same the greater is the pity and the more to be lamented now will i desist from this matter and proceed to other end of section seven Section 8 of The Life and Death of Cardinal Wolsey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Part 8. Upon the taking of the French king, many consultations and diverse opinions were then in argument among the council here in England, whereof some held opinion that if the king would invade the realm of France in proper person with a puissant army royal, he might easily conquer the same considering that the French king and the most part of the noble peers of France were then prisoners with the emperor. Some again said how that were no honor for the king our sovereign lord, the king being in captivity, but some said that the French king ought by the law of arms to be the king's prisoner, for as much as he was taken by the king's champion and general captain, the Duke of Bourbon, and not by the emperor so that some moved the king to take war thereupon with the emperor unless he would deliver the french king out of his hands and possession with divers many other imaginations and inventions even as men's fantasies served them too long here to be rehearsed the which i leave to the writers of chronicles thus continuing long in debating upon the matter and every man in the court had their talk as will without wit led their fantasies at the last it was devised by means of divers embassies sent into england out of the realm of france desiring the king our sovereign lord to take order with the emperor for the french king's deliverance as his royal wisdom should seem good wherein the cardinal bare the stroke so that after long deliberation and advice taken in this matter it was thought good by the cardinal that the emperor should re-deliver out of his ward the french king upon sufficient pledges and that the king's two sons that is to say the dauphin and the duke of orleans should be delivered in hostage for the king their father which was in conclusion brought to pass after the king's deliverance out of the emperor's bondage and his two sons received in hostage to the emperor's use and the king our sovereign lord's security for the recompense of all such demands and restitutions as should be demanded of the french king the cardinal lamenting the french king's calamity and the pope's great adversity who yet remained in castle angel 
either as a prisoner or else for his defense and safeguard i cannot tell whether travailed all that he could with the king and his council to take order as well for the delivery of the one as for the quietness of the other at last as ye have heard heretofore how divers of the great estates and lords of the council lay in a wait with my lady anne boleyn to espy a convenient time and occasion to take the cardinal in a break thought it then that now is the time come that we have expected supposing it best to cause him to take upon him the king's commission and to travel beyond the seas in this matter saying to encourage him thereto that it were more meet for his high discretion wit and authority to compass and bring to pass a perfect peace among these great and most mighty princes of the world than any other within this realm or elsewhere their intent and purpose was only but to get him out of the king's daily presence and to convey him out of the realm that they might have convenient leisure and opportunity to adventure their long-desired enterprise and by the aid of their chief mistress my lady anne to deprave him so unto the king in his absence that he should be rather in his high displeasure than in his accustomed favor or at the least to be in less estimation with his majesty well what will you have more this matter was so handled that the cardinal was commanded to prepare himself to this journey the which he was fain to take upon himself but whether it was with his good will or no i am not well able to tell you but this i know that he made a short abode after the determinate resolution thereof but caused all things to be prepared onward toward his journey and every one of his servants were appointed that should attend upon him in the same when all things was fully concluded and for this noble embassy provided and furnished then was not let but advance forwards in the name of good my lord cardinal had with him such of the lords and bishops and other worthy persons as were not privy of the conspiracy then marched he forward out of his own house at westminster passing through all london over london bridge having before him of gentlemen a great number three in a rank in black velvet livery coats and the most part of them with great chains of gold about their necks and all his yeomen with noblemen's and gentlemen's servants following him in french tawny livery coats having embroidered upon the backs and breasts of the said coats these letters t and c under the cardinal's hat his sumpter mules which were twenty in number and more with his carts and other carriages of his train were passed on before conducted and guarded with a great number of bows and spears he rode like a cardinal very sumptuously on a mule trapped with crimson velvet upon velvet and his stirrups of copper and gilt and his spare mule following him with like apparel and before him he had his two great crosses of silver two great pillars of silver the great seal of england his cardinal's hat and a gentleman that carried his valance otherwise called a cloak-bag which was made altogether of fine scarlet cloth embroidered over and over with cloth of gold very richly having in it 
a cloak of fine scarlet thus passed he through london and all the way of his journey having his harbingers passing before to provide lodgings for his train the first journey he made to dartford in kent unto sir richard wiltshire's house which is two miles beyond dartford where all his train were lodged that night and in the country thereabout the next day he rode to rochester and lodged in the bishop's palace there and the rest of his train in the city and in stroud on this side of the bridge the third day he rode from thence to feversham and there was lodged in the abbey and his train in the town and some in the country thereabout the fourth day he rode to canterbury where he was encountered with the worshipfullest of the town and country and lodged in the abbey of christ church in the prior's lodging and all his train in the city where he continued three or four days in which time there was the great jubilee and a fair in honor of the feast of st thomas their patron in which day of the said feast within the abbey there was made a solemn procession and my lord cardinal went presently in the same apparelled in his legantine ornaments with his cardinal's hat on his head who commanded the monks and all their choir to sing the litany after this sort sancta maria ora pro papa nostro clemente and so perused the litany through my lord cardinal kneeling at the choir door at a form covered with carpets and cushions the monks and all the choir standing all that while in the midst of the body of the church at which time i saw the lord cardinal weep very tenderly which was as we supposed for heaviness that the pope was at that present in such calamity and great danger of the lance knights the next day i was sent with letters from my lord cardinal unto calais by empost insomuch as i was that same night at calais and at my landing i found standing upon the pier without the lantern gate all the council of the town to whom i delivered and dispatched my message and letters or even i entered the town whereas i lay two days after or my lord came thither who arrived in the haven there two days after my coming about eight o'clock in the morning where he was received in procession with all the worshipfullest persons of the town in most solemnest wise and in the lantern gate was set for him a form with carpets and cushions whereat he kneeled and made his prayers before his entry any farther in the town and there he was sensed with two great censers of silver and sprinkled with hail water that done he rose up and passed on with all that assembly before him singing unto st mary's church where he standing at the high altar turning himself to the people gave them his benediction and clean remission and then they conducted him from thence unto a house called the chequer where he lay and kept his house as long as he abode in the town going immediately to his naked bed because he was somewhat troubled with sickness in his passage upon the seas that night unto this place of the chequer resorted to him mons du Biez, captain of boulogne with a number of gallant gentlemen who dined with him and after some consultation with the cardinal he with the rest of the gentlemen departed again to boulogne thus the cardinal was daily visited with one or other of the french nobility 
then when all his train and his carriages were landed at calais and everything prepared in a readiness for his journey he called before him all his noblemen and gentlemen into his privy chamber where they being assembled said unto them in this wise in effect i have quoth he called you hither to this intent to declare unto you that i considering the diligence that ye minister unto me and the good will that i bear you again for the same intending to remember your diligent service hereafter in place where ye shall receive condign thanks and rewards and also i would show you further what authority i have received directly from the king's highness and to instruct you somewhat of the nature of the frenchmen and then to inform you what reverence ye shall use unto me for the high honor of the king's majesty and also how ye shall entertain the frenchmen whensoever ye shall meet at any time first ye shall understand that the king's majesty upon certain weighty considerations hath for the more advancement of his royal dignity assigned me in this journey to be his lieutenant-general and what reverence belongeth to the same i will tell you that for my part i must by virtue of my commission of lieutenantship assume and take upon me in all honors and degrees to have all such service and reverence as to his highness's presence is meet and due and nothing thereof to be neglected or omitted by me that to his royal estate is appurtenant and for my part ye shall see me that i will not omit one jot thereof therefore because ye shall not be ignorant in that behalf is one of the special causes of this your assembly willing and commanding you as ye intend my favor not to forget the same in time and place but every of you do observe this information and instruction as ye will at my return avoid the king's indignation but to obtain his highness's thanks the which i will further for you as ye shall deserve now to the point of the frenchman's nature ye shall understand that their disposition is such that they will be at the first meeting as familiar with you as they had been acquainted with you long before and commune with you in the french tongue as though ye understood every word they spoke therefore in like manner be ye as familiar with them again as they be with you if they speak to you in the french tongue speak you to them in the english tongue for if you understand not them they shall no more understand you and my lord speaking merrily to one of the gentlemen there being a welshman rice quoth he speak thou welsh to him and i am well assured that thy welsh shall be more diffuse to him than his french shall be to thee and then quoth he again to us all let all your entertainment and behavior be according to all gentleness and humanity that it may be reported after your departure from them 
that ye be gentlemen of right good behavior and of much gentleness and that ye be men that know your duty to your sovereign lord and to your master allowing much your great reverence thus shall ye not only obtain to yourselves great commendation and praise for the same but also advance the honor of your prince and country now go your ways admonished of all these points and prepare yourselves against to-morrow for then we intend god willing to set forward and thus we being by him instructed and informed departed to our lodgings making all things in a readiness against the next day to advance forth with my lord end of section eight say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.